I V M. There are grave misgivings that the discussion on ecology may be designed to distract attention from the problems of war and poverty. We have to prove to the disinherited majority of the world that ecology and conservation will not work against their interest, but will bring an improvement in their lives. To withhold technology from them would deprive them of vast resources of energy and knowledge. This is no longer feasible, nor will it be acceptable. What you just heard was an excerpt from a speech that Indira Gandhi made in 1972 at the United Nations. It's 46 years later, and a lot of things have changed. Global warming has intensified. India has changed its stance on the climate change negotiations, from blocking it to someone who's spearheading it. In fact, along with China, India has signed the United Nations Framework for Climate Change, or the UNFCC, and has even started a multilateral group called the International Solar Alliance in 2015. But what is the state of the power sector in India today? How far have we come since the 1970s when Indira Gandhi said this? What bilateral or multilateral moves have we taken to meet some of these challenges? These are some of the questions that we're going to answer in today's episode of States of Anarchy. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan, and every Tuesday I sit down with some guests to discuss international politics and global affairs. Today I'm going to be speaking to Kartikeya Singh. Kartikeya is the deputy director of the Vadwani chair in US India policy studies at CSIS. He served as an advisor and a negotiator on behalf of the Republic of Maldives for the UNFCC, and earlier he also worked at the US Department of Energy where he supported and managed US India and US Pakistan bilateral energy cooperation. But before we begin, let's take a short break. Welcome to the show Kartikeya thank you for being here thank you for having me um i was thinking about um the main topic that we're all talking about these days the rising oil prices and the whole mirage of things that it leads to but even without the rising oil prices what would you say the fundamental problems are in power that india faces That is a good question, and it is something that I think uh, scholars and practitioners, and, and including government, have been grappling with since the time of independence. Um, you know, there's always been a need to expand electricity access in India. We've seen staggering numbers in terms of the number of people, the sheer number of people that require electricity access in a country like India, from as high as 600 million to, uh, of course, now it's come down dramatically. You know, into the 100 to 200 millions of people lacking reliable electricity access. Doing so in a political environment um, where there's tremendous pressure to keep prices of electricity down, which, as from a political level, you don't think about what that means uh, for the business of selling electricity and for firms that are required to generate power and distribute it. There's a bit of a disconnect there, and I think what has happened since the time of independence is we've. 
had increasing number of people get access to electricity, but there has been a power of politics and how it has been subsidized and lack of uh, billing, frankly, of not collecting the bills, of billing inefficiencies, uh, of extreme technical and commercial losses, which this sort of comes into, uh, that do, do not allow India's state-owned, largely state-owned uh, utilities uh, to recoup their costs, to keep up with investments into the build-out of their infrastructure. And fundamentally, um, they are have been consistently burdened by tremendous amounts of debt, which the states carry. And um, and until the power sector is able to be unburdened, and, and that's a very politically difficult decision to make, because how do you raise electricity prices? There are states that have various different categories for how much they want to charge different types of consumers, down to if you run a, a poultry farm to, you know, rice patties, uh, to what kind of consumer you are, you can have different kinds of brackets. But this level of of categorization and around election cycles, um, choosing to provide free electricity or extremely subsidized electricity has been detrimental to the Indian power sector and not allowed it to consistently electrify households and keep up with innovation in the power sector. So I think the linchpin of, of the challenge of India is to be able to transform its electric grid at the same time as providing access to more people, to electricity. Um, we're talking about in a magnitude of roughly half the size of the U.S. population that still requires electricity access in India. And this is despite us saying that all villages have been electrified and so on. Well, so, and that's where there's a little bit of nuance in what that policy means, right? And um, if people have read uh, the Electricity Act, uh, you know, you can see that there's a very um, small line in there that says, um, uh, you know, only 10% of uh, households in a village have to have access to electricity for the entire village to be considered electrified. So we can say, yes, 100% village electrification. That can be a reality. Whether or not it's reliable is a different question and is uh, subject to all sorts of other constraints and relative amounts of um, generation supply. Uh, you know, fuel stocks available, etc. Um, but every household, that's the last remaining challenge. And that's one of the biggest policy measures that every government has tried to push for since independence and not managed to achieve. The Modi administration has repackaged this as something called the Sobhagya Initiative um, and has tried to prepone, if you will, uh, the timeline of every household getting access to electricity to right now, there's actually a very, uh, there's a cash prize uh, for state discoms that the central government has announced to meet this target ahead of the next election. So if by the end of this calendar year, every household in a state gets access to electricity, I am forgetting what the monetary cash prize is, but it's it's sizable. Uh, and it's to be distributed not only amongst the DISCOM staff members, but I think the state gets an additional bonus. So the, the employees have an incentive to get every household electrified. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great... Elections are always a great incentive for policy. Yes. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and, and apparently Bihar, which has been um, one of the states that has been the poster child uh, as part of the Bimaru belt uh, in, in lacking access to all kinds of services and indicators, electricity being one of those very fundamental ones just announced this last week that they have achieved universal electricity access. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's remarkable, if true. Mm-hmm. Uh, ground truthing is, I think, always required. And I know that that's something that um, people in the media in India have managed to do. And this is where reliability matters. Um, even I've done my PhD field work in energy access in India and been to some of the villages in Bihar and seen the power politics there. But getting access to electricity uh, for every household 
figuring out, uh, actually implementing the reforms under the UDE scheme for a power sector, um, and integrating vast amounts of new renewable energy into the grid are, I would say, the fundamental issues that the Indian power sector um, needs to unpack and address. Um, so that's where we are. Okay. So India has its own set of problems that it's trying to grapple with. Um, what's happening on the international stage? Because power is a problem that a lot of countries also deal with. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the problems on um, international, multilateral, bilateral levels that uh, India also has to take into account? Yeah. So on a multilateral level, one of the things um, that, um, and I'm going to put on my uh, my former hat as somebody that was working in the U.S. Department of Energy covering the U.S.-India bilateral energy portfolio, one of the things that we were very keen to see happen was um, that India become sort of an associated member country to the International Energy Agency. And the International Energy Agency came to life in the 70s as a response to the oil shocks, as an energy security measure. Um, and for a long time, it only included OECD members. But increasingly, the energy demand and the security of the global energy supply is going to be governed by countries like India and China and Indonesia and others. The consumers. The consumers. And, um, and this requires a level of transparency in sharing of data. Things that I know are very tricky in India for even the central government to figure out. I mean, if you, as somebody who uh, works at a think tank, you understand that data is getting access to data in India and all kinds of things can be uh, a bit of a mixed bag. You know, there's different figures out there. There's state level agencies, central government. And I know that there are people working hard at work on this. Uh, but on the energy sector in particular, facts and figures are sometimes very hard to get. And so one of the things that in becoming an associated member country to this, which India has finally done, is um, to help increase the level of transparency in those figures. Because when we have the transparency, we can be a more globally secure on the energy front. And for a large country like India to come into that fold is significant. So that finally did happen. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, gives you access to all kinds of technical expertise and technology transfer options and things like that, as well as being, you know, being a part of that forum. The other big multilateral forum which has an impact on India's energy policy and its relations to other countries is the UN climate negotiations, the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change. And here is where India is a fantastic case for anybody to study. And, and I need to um, give you know, special recognition to one of my former institutional homes, the Center for Science and Environment in New Delhi. You know, they, um, no, this is um, Sunita Narin, oh, um, Anil Agarwal, uh, who used to be the, the head there. Um, in the 80s, they came out with a very significant document, a report called Global Warming in an Unequal World. Um, it was in response to uh, reports coming out of developed countries, including the U.S., that um, you know, it wasn't carbon dioxide that was going to be the biggest problem for climate change. It was going to be methane. And methane is a, a worse, more polluting greenhouse gas. Methane comes from rice cultivation and having livestock, things that countries like India and China have a lot of. So indicating that, you know, these countries will, um, are also to blame, um, created kind of a reaction to us versus them. And India played a very... Um, proactive role in shaping the global south's perspective on who should take uh, a leading role in in taking action for climate change um, and that india should have the space the political capital and the space to emit more carbon which means more fossil fuels rather than having to transition to more expensive renewables and that was the narrative that they stood by for decades 
Um, and I think at some point in, um, as India's economy really took off, you were talking about seven, eight percent growth per annum. Um, there was beginning to be an understanding that India's economic, uh, security was going to be underpinned by strong ecological security. And when you have ecological security, threatened by climate change. When you have a country like India whose monsoons are going to become increasingly erratic and unpredictable as we've been seeing, um, that's going to have an impact on the country's GDP and the economic growth rate. Um, and if that means that India needs to start being more proactive and thinking about climate solutions and as a center of uh, you know, innovation and leading in that space, they need to start taking measures. And so through the you know late 90s into the early 2000s, we saw a significant number of measures starting to play out domestically uh, in terms of policies being created, you know, um, energy efficiency standards coming, uh, coming up, emissions trading and energy efficiency coming up, the constitution of a national action plan on climate change and a prime minister's council on climate change to start with, to actually start to seriously, seriously shape the narrative of how India should take action. The solar mission, which came about, which was the first big breakthrough of saying, 20 gigawatts of solar by 2022. And this was being influenced a little bit by what was happening in the international space, but mostly just the under, you know, because of the ecological security and economic security link. But, um, and then we, we also started to see states taking lead in different ways. And, and Prime Minister Modi, uh, during his time as Chief Minister of Gujarat, did create the first Department of Climate Change. Later it was shuttered, but he did do that. He wrote a book on climate change. He started to leverage existing infrastructure works like canals uh, to have solar deployed on top of them, uh, thereby also bringing down the um, evaporation of water from this uh, from the irrigation source. Um, and so when he did come um, into power in 2014 with... Uh, uh, BJP majority in the Lok Sabha, I think leaders around the world um, wanted to seize on the opportunity of a potential climate and energy champion, mm-hmm. um, particularly administrations um, like those here in the U.S., President Obama, who had come into office in 2009, who was, had a big climate and energy platform, and getting India into the fold in the, in the climate negotiations as a yes, we can, um, was seen as a big get, uh, and it was very important. And so that that became one of the strategic relationships between the United United States and India over the several years. But with the narrative that's shifted, right, with um, the U.S. now looking to back out of the um, UN climate negotiations, with China saying, no, we will firmly stand by them, what has been the shift in narrative with India? Between the U.S. and India? Yeah. Well, um, you know, a couple of different things have happened. A couple of different things that were already in process, but maybe weren't, the optics of them wasn't as emphasized as before. So the United States and India have been having a very constructive U.S.-India energy dialogue for well over a decade. And it spans technology cooperation areas like nuclear, coal, oil and gas, renewables and energy efficiency, um, and, um, you know, data best practices and things like that. Sustainable growth was the working group, as it was called. So we were already working in a, in a range of areas. Now, with this administration, of course, uh, signaling has been a little bit anti-climate, a little bit pro-fossil fuels and nuclear. So some of those things have come back to the fore. Um, you know, we, uh, as the United States, had, had wanted to support India in the creation of strategic petroleum reserves. India is doing that anyway with other partner countries like UAE. Um, but one of the biggest things is that the U.S. started to export 
uh, oil and gas. And those regulations were lifted here. And there's already a trade deficit between the United States and India. So to be able to sell oil and gas to India, which has started to happen, is seen as a mechanism to bridge some of that trade deficit as well. Um, so the optics of, you know, we want to assist India in oil and gas. There's a gas task force that's been developed. There's a new, the whole relationship has been recast as a strategic energy partnership. Mm-hmm. Renewables is still one of those pillars in there. Um, and some of our work with them in that continues to this day um, through investments that OPEC is making, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, to the work that uh, the U.S. Aid Group is doing, Department of Commerce, State Department, and of course, Department of Energy. So I think some of those things just aren't being emphasized as much, but some of that work is, is carrying out. But I want to say that one of the unique things that is starting to unfold and that we here at CSIS have been facilitating, and we look forward to working with other partners in India, is a state-to-state energy cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is a recognition here that in order to truly cooperate with India on energy, um, you need to work with India's states. The central government can set a, a fantastic tone and vision in terms of where India needs to be, as we've seen them do uh, in the climate negotiations more recently. Um, but in order to for people to really partner with them, it's the states that need to come on board. And the same can happen here. So with um, you know, President Trump backing out of the Paris Agreement, we've seen a whole number of U.S. states come out of the woodwork saying, no, we're still in the agreement. But forget the agreement. We're seeing a number of states that you know may not have seen the Paris Agreement as something that they favored can see international energy collaboration in a whole new light than they perhaps might not have with the previous administration. And so we're talking about states like Nebraska, Missouri, Florida, which is quite threatened by climate change and rising sea levels, in addition to, of course, the likes of California. But um, we're particularly excited about states um, like Montana and Colorado and some of these others that are coming out of the woodwork to say, actually, we might be able to partner with India on energy. And if India wants to work on renewable energy, energy efficiency, we're there. We have technical expertise. We're interested in commerce in this space. Um, and, and I think that's exciting. Um, yeah, it is. And it would mean so much for cooperative federalism. Exactly. And the fact that states can play a more active role in foreign policy and also meet their own needs. Yeah. At this point, let's take a break. And we're back after the break. What do you think are the problems that India will face um, with power for the next 10, 20 years? Um, So, yeah, that's a few different things. Um, So, as I mentioned, India is trying to integrate vast amounts of renewable energy into the grid, which is very laudable. It's, I mean, thinking very strategically about its energy security. Um, so we're talking about a, a target of 175 gigawatts of new renewable energy from sources like largely solar, good portion from wind, some biomass, and some small hydro. Um, now, this has specific challenges. When you try to bring energy sources that are um, that sort of peak at certain times of the day, if the sun is shining, if the wind is blowing, it can create a flux of electrons into the grid, um, and they need to either be used immediately or stored somewhere. And if you're not storing them somewhere, uh, and you need to use them immediately, as current regulations require through merit order dispatch, that renewable energy sources must be used first. And some states in India are trying to push back against that because it can mean slightly more expensive electricity from those sources than cheaper coal. Um, so we, in India, they need to figure out how to store some of these electrons from renewable energy sources. And there's some pilots that are playing out um, right now that are very much under construction in places like Gujarat, Andhra, and Haryana. Um, so that's something, um, energy storage and integration of renewable energy is one of the challenges that India will need to sort out. 
Um, from a oil and gas perspective, you know, having tremendous amounts of imports of oil and gas, you know, upwards of 80% uh, to fuel our transportation uh, across the country um, is something that the central government had indicated they were going to try and move away from by making things go electric. Um, now, there's been a little bit of wavering back and forth because of what that might mean for Indian industry and, and other things, because India is also an automotive manufacturing yeah. hub. Um, so what this has resulted in is actually no central government policy for this measure, even though there was plenty of signs that they were going to announce one. But states have started taking the lead. Uh, take, for example, where Takshashila sits. Karnataka was the first state in the country to come up with an electric vehicle and energy storage policy, thinking of both of those key critical issues. Um, so electrification of transit will be another very important um, issue that India will continue to grapple with in the coming decades. Um, but I think the transition might be relatively quick. I mean, if you look at the history of how innovation and new technology introductions happen, um, they can they can happen rather quickly. Uh, we just don't feel the transition uh, at an accelerated rate. The third and final thing I think is really going to be um, figuring out um, how to think of new business models for the utilities. Um, as they are largely in debt, uh, you know, they're going to need to improve their technical and commercial um, losses, um, improve billing efficiency. Price of power is going to have to go up for consumers. The tariffs are going to have to be simplified. This is going to be very, there going to be growing pains here. Um, and those with the political leadership to do so will ultimately come out on top because industry will feel unburdened by having to cross-subsidize. And so we already see states taking, you know, innovative measures like trying to turn agricultural consumers, which is a very important vote bank, into prosumers of electricity, which ultimately means um, they become the sellers of electricity back into the grid rather than consumers of subsidized electricity. So if we give them a one-time installment of a solar uh, microgrid through which they can do their irrigation as well, but we incentivize them to not use so much of that electricity for irrigation, thereby also saving water, groundwater, which is really scarce in India, but instead to become sellers of that electricity at market prices, they're more likely, hopefully, that's the hope, to become careful users of all those resources and mitigate their own electricity consumption. So these are the kinds of business models and innovations as, as more rooftops become solarized, utilities are going to be threatened and challenged just because they're not going to be, there's going to be independent generators all over the city. So the states that are able to come out with the policies at the forefront of this are the ones that will um, really set the tone for the rest of the country. Uh, yeah, this is reminding me of the fact that um, Pune, which is a city that I just moved to, um, has just started charging for utilities. They're looking at making sure that all the utility bills are sorted out because municipal corporations who generally handle these are one of the most disenfranchised institutions yeah. in the country. Yeah. Um, I have one last question. Yeah. Something that India has always been... Um, uh, saying whether it's uh, in international negotiations or even domestically is that technology transfer is a key component of any negotiations that they're going to be part of. And how has that changed? Um, well, you know, I haven't been in the climate negotiations for a little bit of time. There was a time that I think um, when I was in it, in the lead up to the Durban uh, platform being set up in 2011 or 12, that India was quite its stance was very much, you know, we need access to critical technologies to address the climate crisis, you know, forget the IPs and things like that. Um, or we, we create a fund for um, offsetting of IP costs for the people that are creating these technologies. But since then, um, you know, and that was again, like I said, 2011 and 12, we've had a new administration in India. And uh, 
India has, in that year that they signed the Paris Agreement, which was quite landmark, they also became party to something called Mission Innovation. Um, and this was a collection of 30 global economies, 30 of the most important global economies coming together to basically declare that they will double their investments in clean energy R&D. Um, you know, in the next five years or less. Um, and what this exercise resulted in was um, sort of a, an assessment by the Indian government of what all their different ministries um, that are in this space, and there are plenty of them, that's one of the challenges, um, are actually how much funds they're actually dispersing for clean energy R&D. Um, keeping in mind that we have tremendous research and uh, development capacities and engineering and intellectual capacity in India, but how is it being funded to be innovators of new sources of technology. Um, and they've determined that only $72 million, uh, which is not a lot. And, you know, it's going to be no problem at all for them. They've recognized to double that, triple that, maybe even quadruple it uh, in, in no time. So I think there's an understanding now that India can become not just a source for getting technology as, you know, being transferred over, but I think there's a real understanding and appreciation for wanting to take the lead in creation of new technologies. And we're seeing this play out in the mobility space because um, the Karnataka electric vehicle policy, for example, wants to set up a battery uh, innovation center. Um, and that then allows them to be, um, you know, there, and there are people uh, in the country uh, like Sun Mobility and others that are have been pioneering in this space. So why not champion the industries? Um, uh, or the technology areas where India can become a lead. Um, so yeah, I think I think that mind shift has has shifted, um, and I unfortunately don't know how that's playing out in the international technology transfer working group, or if that even still exists because I'm not in that space. Uh, but I I can tell you that the the optics coming out on technology are are, are much different. Mm. All right, this is just uh, the last thing that I'm going to ask, which I ask to all my guests generally. What is one book or one reading? that you recommend uh, if people want to just know more about climate change or energy? What is one thing that people should read? Well, if you want to know more about climate change, I would read the latest report that the IPCC has just released. Um, it is quite terrifying. Um, and I think rightly so. I think, um, you know, models have been conservative in terms of uh, or um, where we thought we would be in terms of climate impacts um, and how much time we thought we'd have to really transition our energy and, you know, lifestyles and things like that and the way we do development. Um, so I recommend everybody read the latest IPCC report to grapple with those challenges. On the energy side, you know, um, I, I, I find most helpful uh, of course, reading central government documents uh, is one way to get your source of information. But I think, um, and you can do a little bit of searching for this, but to really understand what states in India are grappling with on energy, you can find the minutes of the meetings of the, the conference of power ministers uh, that have been happening on a relatively quarterly basis. They're available online. The Ministry of Power has been making them available. And you can see which states are bringing up what kinds of issues. And it's just fantastic uh, because that gives you a real granular perspective in the energy issues that India is under, um, you know, undergoing. All right. Thank you so much. Oil prices have gone up every day since I recorded this podcast with Kartikeya in early November. Oil imports are only going to go up with what's happening in the Middle East. There's been no policy on behalf of the Union government regarding the use of oil. There are also reports that the European Investment Bank is looking to invest more than 600 million euros in wind and solar energy products. So renewable energy is something that we're going to have to look more to in the future. But that's a topic for a different episode. 
that's it for today's episode of states of anarchy if you liked what we said or if you disagreed with everything that we talked about you can reach out to me on twitter where my handle is at the rate hamsini h or on instagram at the rate states of anarchy you can listen to states of anarchy on the ivm podcast app website or wherever you get your podcast from i'll be back next tuesday <laughs>